Let's go ahead and turn your Bibles uh, to Colossians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening. We've been in a series called The Church Jesus Longs For. And specifically what we're looking at in this series is we're looking at um, kind of a smattering from Paul's letters to various churches in the first century. And specifically trying to get an apostle's vision into our church. Like, what was he saying to those churches? What were his kind of greatest hits, if you will, to those churches? And how can we get some of that into ours? Now, um, as you're turning to Colossians chapter 2, I want to try something different that I've seen done in some of my friends' churches, and I I think is just really honoring to the scriptures. One of our um, core values is that the scriptures are authoritative, and they tell us the truth that leads to freedom. Think about that. The scriptures are authoritative, There's the word author in there. (laughs) And they tell us the truth. They're telling us a story that actually leads to personal freedom and collective freedom in our lives. Um, I want to try something new. When we read the scriptures together, um, and whenever the word of God is read aloud, it says in in the text uh, that it doesn't return void. In other words, it goes out and it accomplishes things in the hearts and lives of those who hear it. Um, And there is also this kind of dynamic in the scriptures that the power of life and death is in the tongue, right? What we speak out has a massive influence on what we see in our lives. If we're constantly saying, the kingdom's never gonna come, the kingdom's not gonna come to those people, I can never see them getting saved, guess what? Your tongue is actually speaking death over that person. You don't know what spiritually could be happening over them. You also don't know what that's doing to your heart. So we want to be the kind of people that are constantly speaking life, constantly using our words that are lining up with the scriptures. Um, so here's what I want to do. When I read, whenever anybody up here is going to read a text before they jump into teaching, um, at the very end of reading that text, the teacher is going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and then collectively speaking life, what we're all going to say as a church is, may we receive it. Can we try that? So I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we're all going to say, may we receive it. Re- receive it. So this is the word of the Lord. May we receive it. That's good. Oh, that sounded even better than I thought it was going to sound. Wow. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says this. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is the word of the Lord. I want to give you a couple of images to kind of visually describe where we're going this evening, to sort of whet your appetite. These are kind of some appetizers, if you will. The first image is this one. Uh, Just some roots. I was doing some potting of a different plant uh, from Euphora. Any Euphora fans in the house? Anyways, these are brand new Euphora roots right there. So I, I was potting this plant, and, uh, and, and I just thought, oh, this is gonna, this so connects with what we're talking about tonight. So snap the photo of that. The next one is of a building. This is my in-law's neighbor's house. So they're just constructing this building. We've got to watch this construction happen really from the ground up, laying the foundation, the driveway, the whole thing. I snuck in there today and kind of peeked around. It, it looks really nice. Um, next up, uh, th- these are the weights my wife uses to get swole right here. So... <laughs> Well, oh, really? 50? Is that what you think? No, those are two fives, by the way. So um, she's working on it. And uh, next up, next photo, we have, this is just walking through town on the south side of town, uh, just this magnolia in bloom. Who's thankful for this? I am. That is like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's amazing. 
Um, so these are just some real life photos from yours truly. Obviously iPhone only, obviously no filter, as if there was a question. Um, here's what I'm after this evening. Here's what I'm after this evening. The church Jesus longs for receives from him and continues in him. The church that Jesus longs for receives from him and continues in him. If there was ever a thesis to what Paul is saying, it would be this line. Look down in your Bibles, verse six. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Paul's contention is this, that being in Christ will transform the way that you exist. The way that you go about your day, the way that you go about your life, it's down to the, most, the smallest detail of your life, being in Christ is going to touch that thing. And in um, chapter two, verse seven, Paul lists these four characteristics of what it means to continue living in him as you received him. And each of these, images, each, each of these instances is expressed with an image. So we got roots of a tree rooted, right? We have construction of a project built up in love. We have uh, this idea of weight training strengthened in faith. And then we have this uh, final image of flowering, overflowing with gratitude. Uh, these images are important because like all imagery and all poetry, what they are doing is they're using our imagination to subtly move truth to settle in our hearts. The framework of the Christian life for Paul is this. How did you receive him? Because that's what roots you, builds you, strengthens your faith, and causes overflowing with thankfulness. Write this down, the posture you received Christ with is the same posture that a disciple carries throughout all of life. The posture that you received Christ with is the same posture that you're to carry throughout all of life. So let's start with Paul, where Paul starts this evening. What does it mean to receive Christ and continue in him? I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. I want you to imagine something. I want you to go back, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, who are in Christ, I want you to remember, go back in your imagination, what took place when you first understood personally Christ's love for you? What, what was going on in that time? What year was it? What season was it? What, what exactly happened? Was there a message that you heard? Was there a song that you listened to? Was there a friend that you knew? What, what did he say to you? What first got your attention? What really got to you? You can open your eyes. I, I, I would venture to say that as each of you individually go back in your minds to uh, remember that point in your life where you gave yourself to Jesus, that there was, all, there was a point in your story where you said, I am willing to give everything just to have you, God. All throughout the scriptures, we see this theme of a test. Different uh, Bible characters go throughout um, these tests. Uh, Abraham with Isaac was, was one of the tests that we see. We even see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the whole test that we're, that we're witnessing in the scriptures is this. Do you love the things that God gives more than you love him? What are you willing to do to get him beyond what are you willing to do to get the stuff that he blesses you with? And for anybody who follows Jesus, there was a point in your life where you were like, I'm willing to do anything just to get you. I don't care what comes with it. I just want you. 
Most likely, in that moment, you began to see a change in your values. You began to see the world differently. You began to love more easily. You sensed a greater purpose in your life. Now, why do we all have this in common? Um, Well, it's because that everybody receives Jesus the exact same way. Different stories, but it's all essentially the same. Everyone must come to a place of dependence on Jesus, trust in relationship with him, and in order to get to that place, one has to be broken, humble, and in recognition of their position at the foot of the cross. And we've all been there. See, the truth is this, is that you can't receive Jesus if you have something else that you're holding on to, right? It's not that Jesus is so narrow, he's like, I'm not coming to you until you get that out of your hands. No, it's just that Jesus is so all-encompassing that you can't hold on to him fully unless you get the stuff out of your hands. Now, this idea, it strikes directly at the heart of many false gospels today. Just, just to be like pastorally honest with you, um, I have had a, many friends, a lot of people that I've met in the church and, and watched their walk with the Lord, um, and, and, and I've seen it where they receive the gospel with great joy. They become friends with God. They're at church four times a week. They're going to Saints Hill in the evening, Bridgetown in the morning. They're just like, I'm all in, right? But slowly, as they get further away from that initial moment where they gave all of themselves to Jesus, they exchange that posture that got them into the kingdom for a posture that reserves more control in their lives and increasing less trust in him. So I actually want to talk about some of the temptations that we have. I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but I just want to touch on them for a moment. Some of the false gospels that we see today. The first is religion. You know, ironically, we live in this no moral code era. That's kind of the religious attitude uh, that we have of the day, is there's no moral codes, and that's our religion, right? And you see, when you look out in culture, that this has gotten to this vitriolic level. If there's any moral code, it must be torn down. It must be gone against. It's oppression, right? Um, we also live in this world of first comments. You ever been on YouTube and just seen somebody be like, you like Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga singing at the Oscars, and they're like, first? You ever seen that before? Or they're like, anybody here in 2012? Or, you know, whatever. There's all these, this, this comment c- culture, or first listen, I was there first. Or, yeah, I got this uh, free screening. Uh, I, I got in early. I, I was a, it was a first watch, so. Um, but what this has done is this, this culture of first comment has actually leaked into our moral structure as a society. It doesn't make you more virtuous, virtuous to be the first comment on somebody's failure. And we look around us and we see that like, people are so quick to want to be the first. I, was, I, I signaled my virtue first by saying that. I was the first one there to, to, to condemn that. I, did you catch that? Did you see the tweet? Yeah, it's timestamped. This has resulted in us judging people in ways that we would never want to be judged. See, all of us, we want to be judged by our intention, but most of the time we judge people according to their impact. We're like, you had this impact on me, and so it's wrong. I don't care what you meant, it's wrong. But if you think about applying that same standard to yourself, would you ever want somebody, here's what we say, no, no, hear me out. Oh, that's not what I meant. Oh, can we get coffee? This religious attitude that we have around us in our culture isn't good news, and it's not what we received. 
So some of us, instead of uh, getting kind of religious about things, we use this approach to shame and sin in our life, distraction and hiding. This is like the ancient way of getting rid of shame. It's as old as Adam, it's as old as Eve. When faced with our own sin or shame, we focus on small luxuries, shopping, eating, sex, in order to distract us from doing the work of changing our minds to line up with the truth about who he is and about who we are. Ironically, the primary engine for the trivial in our culture is the internet. But the ironic part is that the internet has also been its microscope, never letting people forget about their sin and their shame. In a world where we have no standard of forgiveness, even for something that happened 30 years ago, and in a world where um, things can live on a shared server accessible to anyone across the world with an internet connection, many are desperate to be forgotten believing that the way to get rid of their shame is to simply remove the collective memory. In his book, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is just like a stunning book by this guy, John Ronson, this is what he shares. He says this, the European Court of Justice delivered the right to be forgotten ruling. If an article or a blog about a certain person was inadequate, irrelevant, or no longer relevant, Google must, if requested, de-index it from its European sites. Tens of thousands of people applied to be forgotten straight away. There was more than 70,000 applicants in the first three months. So we have this thing in our psyche that it's like, if I can just get people to forget about what I've done, forget about my shame, then I will actually be saved, right? But this doesn't solve the problem of sin, and we still know deep down that something isn't right. And we're tormented by it. One of my favorite bands, uh, Better Oblivion Community Center, they have this line in one of their songs that says, I need white noise to distract me so I can fall asleep. That's the culture we're living in. It's like, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me by myself, because I can't handle the thoughts that I'm going to think and the shame I'm going to feel when I'm alone. But this isn't good news, and this isn't what we received. So then maybe what we do is we turn to flaunting our shame, flaunting our sin. If distraction and hiding isn't working, we might as well flaunt what we got, right? Some pursue radical flaunting of sin in order to normalize it. If I can just normalize this behavior, then I won't feel bad about this behavior anymore. Portland is like the king of this, the naked bike ride, everybody. That is the essence of flaunt, just flaunt it, right? Um, I have a, a brother named Enric who's from Rwanda, and uh, when he first moved into our house, he uh, somehow, you probably remember this, Mom, I, somehow he got stuck in the traffic of the naked bike ride. He's like brand new from Rwanda, and he, his welcome to America is the naked bike ride. And so he's sitting there, stuck in traffic, and he gets home, and he was shook. This guy was straight shook. He gets home, and he's like, he's like, it was horrible. I'm like, what, what was horrible? What was it? He's like, there were just, the, everybody was naked, and everybody was white. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, nobody, only white people are doing the naked bike ride. Let's just be honest about it. And he's like, he's like, I thought I was in hell. I thought I was in hell. And I'm like, oh, wow. This is not good news. This is not what we received, Right? So maybe then, in our last-ditch effort to get rid of shame is to ignore it, to just ignore it. This is the gospel of, hey, nothing's wrong with you. You're amazing. You're perfect as you are, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is a version of the gospel where the weight of sin is removed through the removal of authority of the scriptures. 
It's like, if I can just get these scriptures off my back, then I'll actually be free. But unfortunately, many who engage in this find that when they removed the moral demands of the text, they also removed the identity and good news that Jesus offers along with it. This doesn't work. Because here's the deal, people do things that are wrong. They do, I do. And, and people do things that hurt. And people make choices that though uh, they may not make sense in our moral utilitarianism that we currently live in, they actually break the creator's design. Cornelius Plantinga, he says, they vandalize God's shalom. They vandalize his shalom. Francis Spufford, uh, in his book, Unapologetic, which that's what I was pointing out to you, Emily, last week. This book is just awesome. He says this, taking things people do seriously is part of taking them seriously. It's part of letting their actions have weight. It's part of letting them be real enough to be worth loving rather than just attractive or glamorous or pretty or charismatic or cool. What people do matters. And so to just ignore it, that's not good news. And it's not what we received. Uh, My problem with each of these methods of the removal of shame and the removal of sin whether it's religion, distraction and hiding, ignoring or flaunting, is that they diminish the role of reception. They diminish the role of receiving what Christ has done for more control over your life. And they actually keep us from continuing in what Christ has done for us. See, the truth is that instead of religion, we got free from judging one another by being found right before God by nothing that we had done. So it's open to everybody. It's a level playing field. The cross is an equal opportunity offender. It just is. Instead of hiding, we've been found by a father and welcomed to a table. Instead of flaunting our sin, we're loved in spite of the messes that we make, and there's nothing that he cannot transform. I repeat, there is nothing that he cannot transform. Instead of ignoring sin, he actually takes us serious enough to help us see that our actions have weight, both good and bad. So how exactly does Jesus do this? How does he get rid of sin and shame? Uh, I want to show you just this stunning uh, painting inside of one of the cathedrals in uh, Rome. I I don't know if you can kind of make out out of the shadows what's going on here, but you have this, this incredibly dramatic scene of this snake twisting and twirling, and then you have the foot of Mary and then also the foot of Jesus crushing the head of the snake. It was painted by Caravaggio in the year 1600. Many considered his paintings to be examples of the miraculous in common day due to their beauty. People were just like, they're so beautiful, and you should honestly look them up, Caravaggio. Um, They're just stunning. I I love art, and so I was just kind of like, I was looking at all of his paintings this week. Um, And if this image, uh, you're sitting here and you're going, okay, what does this have to do with anything? If it doesn't remind you of anything in the Bible, let me jog your memory a little bit. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first prophecy comes from the lips of God. Right after Adam and Eve are deceived and agree with the serpent, God curses the accuser, and he promises that there will be a child born of a woman who will crush the head of the snake. So from the very beginning of of the Bible, we get this little hint that a Messiah will come, a Savior will come, who will take that liar and actually do away with him for good. Releasing truth over all who have been deceived, becoming victorious over anything that could separate the creator from his creation. And that's what we celebrate with what Jesus did 
on the cross and in the grave. Now, uh, this snake crusher is promised to come through the seed of Abraham. If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm gonna bless you so that you'll be a blessing and all nations will be blessed through your seed. Interesting, in Genesis 3.15, that word seed is used as well, as there will be a seed from woman that will go and crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis chapter 12, it says there's gonna be a seed from Abraham that's gonna bless the world. And we're supposed to literarily connect these two images. Um, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, so a few chapters after, he's promised that he is going to be a blessing and his family will be a blessing through his seed. Uh, we get a further description for how children of God are going to receive the work of Jesus. What is the work of Jesus that's gonna be, he's gonna crush the head of the serpent, but what else? Uh, th- this is another little uh, depiction of Genesis chapter 15, and essentially what you have here, are you have this, this kind of aisleway created by two halves of animals, and you have this smoking pot and this torch that are floating through the animal parts. You're like, okay, um, what is going on? Well, go read Genesis 15 on your own time, but essentially what's going on in this passage is after being promised that the Messiah who blesses the world will come through his family, Abraham asks this, How do I know that my seed will produce blessing for the whole world? How do I know? And then he says, how do I know that the promised snake crusher will come through my life? How do I know? So God does this. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut a bunch of animals in half. It's pretty brutal. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to create an aisle. Now, Abraham would have instantly known exactly what was going on. He's making a covenant with God. See, in this time period, the way that a covenant worked is you would cut animals in half, and then the two parties who were coming into an agreement through that covenant would walk through the center of the animal parts. Here's what they're saying. If I do not hold up my end of the deal in this covenant, may my life and my body be like these animal parts. Just visceral. Imagine walking between them, blood splattered on the ground, getting onto your sandals. So Abraham knows, okay, so here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna have me cut these in two and he, he made that promise and he's gonna have me walk through it so that I can hold up my end of the deal to really bless the world. Normally, uh, when making this covenant, the weaker or the less powerful party would be the one that would walk through it. So if it were a king and a subject, the king would have the subject walk through it and the king would not walk through it because whether he holds up the covenant or not, he has enough power to not really worry about his life. But all of a sudden, here's what happens in the text. Abraham falls asleep. Now here's a twist. The animal parts are laid, splayed. And he falls asleep. Why? Here's what happens next. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What's going on? What the heck is this? This, I would argue, is the model of salvation that Jesus has for us, and it's this. God says, instead of Abraham, I'm having you walk through this, this, these animal parts to say, may your life be torn apart if you do not hold up your end of the deal. God comes down symbolized as this burning torch and this smoking pot, and he passes through the middle. What is he doing? God is saying, if I do not hold up my end of the deal, may I be like these animal parts. But he's also not asking Abraham to go through, and so he's saying this. And if you do not hold up your end of the deal, Abraham, may I be like these animal parts. And he was. Because on the cross, Jesus was torn and pierced, just like these animals were when we did not hold up our end of the deal. 
This is the gospel of reception. You go to sleep while Jesus crushes the snake and pays the price for our sin. Can you receive that tonight? (laughs) Oh, goodness. And if that's the way that we received him, that's the way we continue in him. You continue in him by receiving. <laughs> I gotta, we gotta, we're doing some training right now. There's a thought that once you received Christ, then you move on to more mature things. It's like, oh, there was that moment where I really understood the gospel and it was beautiful, but that was child stuff. I'm done with the milk. I want the meat. C.S. Lewis, he says this. When I became a man, I gave up childish things, including the fear of looking childish. (laughs) Oh, goodness, help us, Lord. The way that we received is actually the way. The posture that we had in that moment is the way that we continue in him. It's with this posture that Paul says you continue in him. And he uses these four images to describe how we continue to receive what we received in the beginning. The first image is this, it's rooted It's rooted. Look down at your Bibles. He says this in verse six. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, asleep, letting him crush the snake and walking through the animal parts for you, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted. Rooted. I wonder if there's ever a better text for springtime. My wife and I were doing some landscaping around our house and uh, we just got some new trees to put out in that like uh, area between the sidewalk and the street. So we planted some trees. And uh, what you're trying to do when you plant trees is you're trying to get those tender new shoots, those new roots. You're trying to get them to the nutrients as quick as possible. You're trying to get them to start receiving the nutrients immediately so that they don't shrivel and die because their life is in the nutrients. They need the nutrients, right? The whole goal is to put the most tender and sensitive life receptacles down deep into nutrition and water. So it's a very simple question for you this evening. It's basically this. If you received Christ, are you continuing to feed on him every day? Where are you getting fed? Where are you getting fed? We're gonna receive communion in a few, in a few moments. And, and, and the reason why I think Jesus gave us something to ingest into our bodies is to remind us that that's how we live. That's how we live. We need it. We need his body. We need his blood coursing through our veins, building up our bodies spiritually and physically. We need it. It's a reminder that this is our real bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word. His words are life. And and we need to stay rooted in those words. Here's what David Garland said, uh, who wrote a commentary that I was reading about this passage. He says, the first three uh, instances, rooted, built up, and strengthened, are in the passive voice in Greek, implying that that divine action is essential in Christian growth. Paul's readers have not rooted themselves, built up themselves, or strengthened themselves. God has. So are you allowing him to feed you? Let me just ask you pastorally, do you have a time of day where you get alone with the scriptures and you just say, feed my soul? I'm not here for for you, God. I'm not here to, to check something off the box. I'm not here to prove that I'm like a good person or anything. I'm here to receive from you. That's what we want to do. Second image is that built up. 
It's like a project. Built up implies that you're still under construction. You're not a finished product yet. Your identity is in Christ. Your actions don't determine that. It's already been settled. So now your life is a project where God is building you up into a glorious house that can contain both power and love by his Holy Spirit. He's building you up. We have a hard time with this because of the sanctified spirit of false humility in the church. We're like, I'm not awesome, he's awesome. As though like, if you were just lesser, then it would make him look more awesome or something like that. I've used this before. But what dad at his son's basketball game, when his son takes a shot and misses it, says, see, told you, I'm awesome. Look at that, he stinks, I'm the best. But yet we, we actually, we kind of apply this to God. We do. We think that if we can just make ourselves go lower and, and look worse, or if we can just like be like, no, I'm nothing but a broken, potsherd, Lord. I don't even know what that is, but it's in the text, God, but that's what I am. <laughs> then, then, then you're going to be just glorified. We think that it's better for us to be messes because somehow that shows God's glory more clearly. But it isn't the mess of believers that makes him look great. It's the amazing, awesome product God was able to bring out of the mess that makes him look great. He wants you to be awesome. Now, how the culture defines that, it's probably a little bit different than how God defines it. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He's building a big person in you. He's putting dreams that are, if you have a dream that, okay, off script, I'm keeping an eye on the time. If you have a dream that comes into your life that's too big for you to imagine doing it out of your own strength, and you say, oh, it's just images of grandeur, it's a shining image out in front of me, it's trying to get me all puffed up, nope, I'm not gonna go there. You have just said no to dependence on his spirit. (laughs) We need things that challenge us because we're supposed to live dependent. It's not so you can be like, yeah, God gave me this dream and I did it all myself, I'm amazing. No, it's like, no, God gave me this dream, I couldn't do it without him. And when I did it with him, he got glory and I got glory. And that's what he intended. It says in Isaiah that we're in, we were created to exist in his glory. We're made for glory. It says in the New Testament, we go from glory to glory, not glorious moment, enraptured, I came to you, I received you, Jesus, to, eh. Yeah, he's a Christian. Yeah, she follows Jesus, I guess. It's like, no, you're supposed to go from glory to glory. Okay, it doesn't look, the Christian life isn't this. Maybe your emotions are this, but the Christian life is this. It's this. And sometimes we like, we forget this, or or we just think it's, oh, am I gonna look like prideful or something? No, you're not gonna look prideful. You're gonna look like you agree with your creator. I wanna agree with him. When we let him build and shape us into what he wants, we become awesome and he gets the credit. I can't apologize for the promotion that the Lord has brought into my life, but I must steward it to serve like I have been served. This is why keeping reception at the forefront is how we continue. Without reception being the primary goal of your life, at best, you are a functioning self-righteous mess, and at worst, you're gonna do damage to the worth and understanding of the gospel to those around you. Maybe this good news is better than you thought. Thirdly, he uses this image of being strengthened in faith. Strengthened in faith that implies that as you trust, you grow in trust. Say that again. Strengthened in faith implies that as you trust, you grow in trust. It compounds on itself. 
Your trust gets you stronger against threats outside yourself. James said this, faith without deeds is dead. Show me your faith and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now sometimes we get this confused. James isn't saying that have a bunch of faith in one corner of your life, but then be very balanced and have another corner of your life where you have a list of good things that you do. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying this, faith without deeds that require faith will cause your faith to shrivel and die. Faith without deeds that require faith will cause your faith to shrivel and die. It's not like, I have a bunch of faith, I trust you, God, and so you know what? I'm gonna go feed the homeless. Did that require any faith? Or is your faith still sitting on the sideline while you're just doing something practical to help people? Still a very good thing. What, what James is saying is that you actually get stronger in faith as you use your faith to accomplish things that could only happen by faith. So how do you get strong in Christ? You let his faithfulness build your faith. How do you get faith? You get close to the one who's faithful. A couple years ago, I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, if I ever want to do the things that are on my heart, the dreams that I have in my life, I'm gonna need more faith. And I remember just saying to the Lord very honestly, I'm like, I just honestly don't trust you that much. I don't trust you for this, I don't trust you for that, and so here's what I need, Lord. I need you to prove yourself in some really small things, and let's just kind of start building a repertoire of faith in my life. Let's just start building some trust in my life. And so I, I, I just remember just being like, okay, I'm gonna trust you in the little things, Lord, and, and, and then I want you to actually take me to things that stretch and grow my faith. It's like weight training. This is how weight training happens. You start with those little fives, but soon those are gonna be 50s. And you start with just little weights, and you're just like, okay, and now I'm getting a little bit stronger, and I think I can go to 25s now. I'm gonna go to 25s. And what you're doing is you're stretching your muscle so that it actually strengthens itself, grows from the nutrients you're pulling in, rooted, full circle, you're growing from the nutrients, and then you're actually, your faith is getting stronger so that you now have faith for things you never thought you'd ever have faith for. I promise you this, guys, I have faith for some things that I never thought that I would ever have faith for. I will pray for healing for people that I would, I would have been terrified to do that years ago. Now, um, Paul ends with this. He says, the crowning product of a life rooted, built up, and strengthened in the good news of Jesus is gratitude. It's gratitude, overflowing and gratitude. Uh, the, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my father-in-law, he got a, uh, his uh, brother-in-law? Yeah, his brother-in-law, your uncle, uh, brought a drone over that had a cool camera attached to it that you could see like all sorts of different parts of their property. They have a, a cool piece of, a piece of land that they live on. And they uh, took the drone up there and they were taking all this video. And it, it, it was really cool. Um, we walked into his office the other night and he was watching the video and he had put like, He'd put a John Denver song to the video. It was just beautiful. Uh, so we're watching this video with him. And uh, in the video, the drone is just up in the air, and it's looking down, and there's my German shepherd puppy running around, just frolicking in the field. There's their dog just running around with her playing. I see my wife just standing in her boots, hanging out by the fence. I see my, my in-laws hanging out over here and playing with the drone. And I just, I, I almost was brought to tears because sometimes we need just that drone video to get a glimpse of what our lives actually look like. To just get thankful. To just go, oh my gosh, you blessed me just to get a little distance so that I can see what you've done in my life. Just put things in perspective to what we have been given. 
theologian says this, as luxuriant green leaves are a sign of a healthy plant, profuse gratitude is the unfailing mark of a healthy spiritual life. I love that word profuse. I I would say that this tree, next slide, I would say that this is profuse. Why is it profuse? It's just receiving the nutrients that are being given to it. It's just soaking up the goodness that God created on his good earth. It's just overflowing with flowering and gratitude for the health. There are a million reasons for us to be thankful, and someday I think I'm just gonna do a gratitude series. It would be so fun. But I just wanna address one this evening. I wanna address this. If your life is focused on your human rights, if your life is focused on rights, that, those things will, and that, that, that conviction that you have will inevitably lead you to entitlement and thus to ingratitude because whatever good does end up coming your way, you believe you were already owed it to begin with. A life focused on rights is lesser because it works and thinks from lack. I'm owed this and I don't have it. Rather than from a place of recognizing that there is no such thing as human rights in the scripture, There's human worth and human value, but in the scripture, what we realize is that we deserve nothing and Jesus still gave us everything. That leads us to gratitude. You cannot fully enjoy something without feeling grateful for it. You just can't. So let me ask you this. Do you ever just walk around your house or your room or your property or garage and just start pointing out things and thanking him for them? I do this all the time. I, I just have like, it's gotten, become a habit of mine. I'm just like, and thank you for that shovel, Lord. And thank you for that saw. And, and God, thank you for this car. And, and thank you for, and you know what it's doing? It's actually sanctifying these items so that they don't become idols in my life. Instead, they act like they should. They point me back to the giver. Sometimes we get caught up in this like, oh, but what if I idolize that thing? Or what if I make my whole life about that thing? And, and then I'm just gonna fall into idolatry. It's like you don't need to actually, like don't worry about idolatry. Hear me out. What you need to worry about is giving correct gratitude for what you've been given. You don't fall into idolatry when you're grateful for something. You fall into gratitude when you're grateful for something. You fall into generosity when you're grateful for something. There's nothing more holy than getting thankful for the material, the relationships, the revelation that he has given you. Just get thankful for it. Guilt, giving out of a place of guilt is not the kind of generosity that God is after. The, I was uh, over at uh, Imago Day yesterday for the Holy Spirit Conference, and I was just checking out the Bible Project, uh, whole new build-out. It's awesome. We have uh, John in the back who works at the Bible Project. And I was just thanking God for the Bible Project. I was just like, God, thank you so much for the Bible Project. Thank you for the abundance that you've poured out on the Bible Project. Thank you for how they are completely reaching all corners of the world. My wife and I were in France this last summer, and the, there were these people staying at our same bed and breakfast who were from... Uh, New Zealand and Australia, or Tasmania, and they, they knew about the Bible Project. I'm like, okay, we're in France, and we're meeting people from across the world who are like following the Bible Project. And I'm just like, God, thank you for it. Thank you so much for all of the, the resources that you're pouring out on them. See, I, and so then I, you know what I started doing is I started thinking about all of Portland. I, I just got really thankful. I'm like, thank you for the buildings here. Thank you for how you just poured blessing out on this land, God. There's so much abundance here. See, sometimes we think that the answer to consumerism or the answer to, to collective wealth in a nation is like a vow of poverty, but it's not. It's a vow of gratitude. You can't be grateful and selfish. You just can't. 
So what if you started thanking him for what you have? I, I would imagine you'd stop holding on to those things so tightly. I'd imagine you'd be like, I do have so much, and I'm ready to just give it away. So, so here's what I want, where I want to end. I, I want to end by us getting a personal vision for what a rooted life could look like. What is your vision for what a rooted life could look like? Because that rooted life, that's the life that continues in what it received. Oh, I want you to imagine for a moment what Paul could have seen in the lives of the disciples around him that would cause him to write such a text to the church in Colossae. As you received, continue in him, rooted, built up, strengthened, overflowing. He must have seen all of these things before for him to be compelled to write about them. Paul met the disciples. He worked with Peter at one point. Awkwardly, he even rebukes Peter. Uh, But he watches as Peter and John change the world through church planting and the kingdom of heaven coming. What Paul had witnessed was he'd seen lives that were caught on fire and remained rooted in that fire by continuing the reception, continuing the reception. A life that wouldn't have been much consequence except for the fact that the fire had, been, had fallen on Peter and John, and they continued to receive it all throughout their lives. Here's a final image I want to share with you of Pentecost. Uh, just, this is in the Louvre. Um, and you have these little, you can see these little uh, pieces of fire that are just hovering over the heads of the apostles right there. And if you know the story of Pentecost, they, they pray for boldness, and the Holy Spirit comes, and it descends on them physically with fire. Tongues of fire came upon them, now, uh, this image came to me last night. Uh, my wife and I, um, we, I got home from the Holy Spirit Conference, and we just started talking about um, just the church plant and how it's going and, and things that are difficult and things that are frustrating and, and some of those things. And I, my wife quickly, quickly just directed me to gratitude. She's like, yeah, but there's so much fruit and there's so many things that we need to look at and be thankful for, and, and I'm so grateful for her for doing that. Um, and, and I just, we got to this point, it was like 2 a.m., and we get to this point of just talking about what God has been doing, that we just started repenting for just doing church. We don't want to do church. Just confessing, God, we didn't come here to build a platform. We came here to build an altar with our lives. We came here to be sacrificed, God. We came here to be the first pieces of wood willing to jump on the altar and be consumed for your glory here in Newburgh. We're not here, to church. gosh, guys, Newburgh has so many churches. We're not here for another church. We are here for revival. We're here for renewal. And so I just remember, I I said to Emily, I said, you know, fire always falls on sacrifice. Do you want that fire? And we were like, yes, we want that fire, God. We're willing to sacrifice. And my my wife just said, let's get on our knees and pray then. So just 2 a.m., just just on our knees, just asking God, send your fire. Send your fire on us like you sent it on the apostles. Send your fire on us. Burn us up. Let us be the first to burn that we would see Newberg catch fire. See, I have a vision for my life and it's revival. I'm not playing church. I didn't come here to build an organization. Organized church is great, but I'm here for fire. I'm here for revival. As we were praying, the Lord just gave me this image of a paint can of white paint and he was behind it and he just sloshed it down every street. It went through every street in the downtown kind of Newburgh area and he said this, I am washing those who have sinned white as snow. I'm bringing many into my kingdom. I want that in our church. I want that in our church. Let's all stand together. If you're on the-